You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game studies scholar from Germany. And I'm Aaron Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. And uh, listeners, if you weren't with us last week and you didn't hear Dan mention this and you're missing his sultry voice and incisive wit, he's actually off at a classic games convention in some part of Texas. Uh, He'll tell you all about it, including reminding you of the exact location when he's back this coming week. Uh, But he's, he's very excited to go and continue in person on this theme of collectible games that we've been spinning out over the last few weeks. And our hearts go out to him as always. He's probably going to splash quite a lot of money and come back with some kind of like you know, old SNES or something. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll all know the impact he's made when we do our next side quest story. Original copy of Silent Hill sells for two million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan suddenly is like super rich and has like golden teeth. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they call him old gold tooth Silent Hill Dan. <laughs> that's his name. <laughs> Uh, Stefan, so after last week, uh, we we talked about the Steam Deck, and we talked about it in relation to the new model of the Nintendo Switch coming out, and you mm. actually ran a little poll among your Twitter followers to gauge their interest in one or the other. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I couldn't stop thinking about the Steam Deck because I myself have been wondering throughout last week's episode whether in case, like, when it comes to holiday season this year, whether I would get the Steam Deck or the OLED model of the Nintendo Switch. And that's why I did a small poll. Not many people have participated. I think it's like only nine people or something. It was on my private Twitter account. But um, the result was 100% for the Steam Deck. So the Nintendo Switch OLED model does not get much love. It, well, wow. it probably does, but in this particular poll. <laughs> That's so interesting to me. Do, do you have any theories as to why the result was so overwhelmingly in favor of the Steam Deck? I could imagine that the Switch OLED model is cool, but I think it's, at least in my mind, and presumably in some others' minds as well, not as much of an upgrade as people would have hoped. So for me, it is also the case that if I think about it, do I really need to upgrade my Switch if it's if it doesn't give me a substantial computational upgrade? If it if it will still be a machine where I would say no third party games I'm not going to play on the Switch, then <clears throat> to me the Steam Deck is just the more attractive option. I must say, especially if you have a Switch already, that might be also a reason why it's so overwhelmingly in favor of the Steam Deck because probably most of the people that follow me and participate in such a poll already have a Nintendo Switch. Well, that, yeah, that's a really good point. Maybe it harkens back to what we were talking about the other week about how um, how the Steam Deck, say what you will about it, but for those people who game mostly on consoles and are maybe not interested in making the jump to a full gaming PC, it gives them access to this whole library of PC games that they didn't previously have. So I could see that being a, a material um, impact on people wanting it rather than the Switch. Yeah, they do have a really good chance to make it with the Steam Deck. It depends on how they market this thing and whether they can get the distinguishing points uh, from the Nintendo Switch across because they'll have to justify that it's uh, quite a bit more expensive depending on which model you get. It's at least $50 more than the Nintendo Switch and it doesn't come, it, it, it won't play any Mario or Zelda games and you need to have, you need to really hammer down on these uh, USPs such as your entire uh, 
PC system library being available there. And I'm curious to see how that pans out throughout the latter half of this year. Well, time will tell, as they say. Time will tell, yeah. By the way, dear listeners, uh, next week, we're not going to be around. This is going to be an exception. We were, we're going to take a holiday. I've actually uh, never been to a spa in my entire life. And I, I wanted to do that now. I, I, I've never taken a, a mud bath or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I have either, but the people who take them in TV shows that I watch always seem very, very relaxed. So Very relaxed. I, I imagine you've earned it, my friend. <laughs> it's like we really love to do this podcast. And something that I've learned, though, over the years of now seven years of podcasting, I think weekly podcasting, is that um, it's good to sometimes allow yourself to take a tiny break. We're going to keep up the, you know, regularly producing a show for you every Sunday. But sometimes it's good to take a small break, get away from things, just, you know, get yourself acupunctured or, or whatever whatever you do at such a spa and then come back with a with a fresh mindset um, in order to fulfill our mission which is as those of you who have listened to the show already know uh, to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling and because of the attempt to bring these tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling to everyone this show is free. It's independent. You won't encounter any advertisements. You won't run into a paywall. And instead, we rely entirely on your support. So if you wish to contribute, then please go to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to find out more. And then after our brief holiday, I'm sure we can expect a grand thesis from Stefan on the storytelling interactive uh, impact of acupuncture on gamers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually wondering whether I should bring a video game with me. I'll have to see. I'll have to see whether maybe maybe bring oh, my Switch. Animal the Crossing Switch gameplay experience during a mud bath. That could be another yeah. good one. <laughs> <In a mud laughs> so many possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we're going to pick up on our thoughts on Returnal, especially your thoughts on Returnal, Aaron, because you've been working extensively on an article that has now been published on With a Terrible Fate, where you interpret Returnal, if I, if I summarize this correctly, you interpret Returnal as uh, an extension of one single mind. So basically the entire game being a representation of one single mind. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Not, not even an extension of a mind so much as a representation of a single mind, as you said, Stefan. Um, and, and listeners who have been with us uh, will have heard me harping on my, my work on this throughout my long journey. Uh, it was a while in development. Uh, but yes, I, I, I fell in love with Returnal much more than I expected while playing it. And one of the things that I thought was tremendously cool about it was as someone who plays a lot of psychological games and psychological horror games, I'd just never really seen something quite like this, where it's not even so much something that plays with the psychologies of various characters throughout the story, but actually has less of a plot-driven story and more of this 
uh, just act of the player analyzing and exploring this single mind where the closer you look at all the details of the game, the more I think it can be woven into an understanding of this singular psychology, which is just absolutely fascinating and, and I think makes for uh, the, the really interesting and unusual aspects of the experience of playing Returnal. So I wrote about that. Uh, I want to shout out the tremendous uh, staff of creators and thinkers uh, at Housemark who worked on this and developed it. it. It was really cool to see actually a number of them uh, engaging with the article and talking to me about it. Uh, and it, it really did, uh, as I said on Twitter, make my month when the director, Harry Kruger, uh, actually shared it with his audience. So Aww. Harry, thank you. I know, I know. It's, it's funny because especially for an analyst like me, and, and perhaps you can relate to this too, Stefan, um, you know, I'm all about reading the the text so to speak that is a game uh as it's presented rather than what a creator might or might not have been trying to say with it uh but of course none of this kind of analysis could happen without these amazing creators and so to see them uh you know take the time to recognize and appreciate this kind of work just means the world to me uh and we couldn't do what we do without them doing what they do so it's been a lot of fun i think it's especially interesting because you notice when when creators of any form of art engage with interpretation of their artworks that they also truly care how people read this and that might that is like for both sides that is inspiring for analysts for critics but also for creators so they know how to look at their own or, or they they can explore the angles on looking at their own work and tie that into future work that they might be doing and I think that's right. It says a lot to me when a creator of, of any kind of artwork or narrative media is able and willing and excited to have a conversation about different meanings it might have rather than just wanting to talk about what they intended to say with it. I think, you know, that that just that's such a foundational aspect to me of how art and engagement with art works. Uh, and not every creator is like that and not every consumer of storytelling is like that. But when everyone is able to just engage um, with the same background assumptions and understanding of the work and those kinds of conversations. I mean, that's when some of the coolest kinds of understanding happens where even creators are able to discover things in their works that they might not have expected or, or intended to represent in that way. So uh, and Returnal is the perfect breeding ground for all of those conversations, as you know. It is, yeah. And it, it got us thinking about the idea of mindscapes and how minds can be explored in different ways by video games, um, which is what we want to do for, for this episode. We want to like map the space of different mindscapes, how they work and how they relate to, uh, of course, you know, any kind of character in a game, how they relate to the avatar and how they relate to players. Yeah, so, and this this is a very cool topic. I'm excited to chat with you about Stefan because, uh, as as I think listeners know, we've talked a little bit about before. You know, the, a large amount of your work focuses on representations of psychology, but specifically madness in video games, right? And while my work on the philosophy of video game storytelling doesn't focus on psychology as such. It's interesting. And I was thinking about this as we were getting ready for this episode, because the I, I think the panel we have been most frequently asked to give as a publication at the PAX conventions that we've gone to in the past has been specifically on horror storytelling. And after we give these talks, we always find ourselves wondering, like, 
well, why why is it the case that horror as a genre specifically is is so interesting for digging into these aspects of video game storytelling? And I think a big aspect of it is exactly what we're going to talk about today, right? Which is because of this special kind of interactivity that video games have where there's this agent within the fiction, the player who's able to determine certain aspects of the avatar without having full access to all of their mental states and psychology, that tension and difference and lack of knowledge can generate a lot of really interesting psychically driven drama, uh, which is oftentimes manifested by representations of that psychology in the worlds that you're, you know, um, prompted to explore as the player going along with the avatar. So I think it's, it's part and parcel of what makes video game storytelling so cool that it's uniquely well suited for these kinds of psychologies that we're going to be digging into today. Yeah, and you just mentioned the lack of knowledge, as in, um, you have you you never have a full grasp of the psychology of well an avatar, but also of any other human being, because um, we are. If you don't want to get too spiritual, then our consciousness, our consciousnesses, are closed off systems. You know, you can only you have an an epistemologically privileged uh, position that only you know your thoughts and your your cognitions and your sentiments you can express them obviously otherwise communication wouldn't be possible but i think the fact that we are limited to the operations of our own consciousness is one of the reasons why mindscapes are so interesting because what mindscapes do is they take these uh, these cognitions the sentiments everything that we that we fit under the umbrella term of mind and project it outwards into an explorable space that we otherwise couldn't explore. Yeah, and and you know, I think this is one of those episodes, and I think we have to give this disclaimer with every episode where we could easily do a million follow-ups. I think yeah. it's it's interesting because even as we've been talking about mindscapes for the last few minutes, you know, we'll we'll explore a variety of different narratives that play with mindscapes, but it is one of those things that I think rewards um, digging into the finer aspects of how these stories are put together and the nuances can easily change something like how these psychologies are represented. For instance, right, you talk about the privileged epistemic nature of of one's consciousness and subjective experience. And that's totally right. And it also, to me, raises this really interesting question that we can leave as food for thought for later, right? Where when you're in a really psychologically rich mindscape, such as those we'll be considering, can you really take it at face value that you're experiencing the psychology of whoever, whichever character is the one generating the mindscape, or for instance, when it's mediated by something like a narrator or a narrative perspective, is there similarly a, a level of interpretation that distances us, the person engaging with that story from the actual conscious experience? And are we learning perhaps more or at least something about the narrative voice rather than the character itself. So there's plenty to consider here. And I think it's safe to say we'll only be scratching the surface today. Of course, yeah, we might even do a couple of follow-ups. We'll see how far we get this time around. But uh, I do think that one thing that most games do that work with Mindscapes is they do draw a clear distinction between like a clear border 
between what is considered to be diegetically real and what I mean by that is that within the fictional world of the game, it is the material reality. And on the other hand, what is considered to be a mindscape. So uh, that's usually something where you have some kind of clear line drawn for most games. Not all of them do that, and we're going to address some that don't do that, but most do, I would argue. Yeah, and, and those anchor points, as you might call them, to reality are a key part of what allows you to understand which parts of the game are the psychology of a character and it's also what, in cases such as Returnal, make it feel less like a mindscape and more like just a singular psychological representation. It's interesting, Stefan, because I haven't studied mindscapes in the same way that you have, um, but the more I was thinking about it, um, the more I could see its roots, uh, as as you mentioned to me before this, uh, in in psychoanalysis, right? When people are really starting to think about the different nature and elements of mind, uh, and and we see it crop up in all sorts of media, not even just video games. Uh, in the time since the inception of psychoanalysis, like novels, films, I'm, I'm sure everyone once once they stop to think about this framework can think of some of their favorite stories that fit into it. Yeah, I think psychoanalysis is a crucial stepping stepping stone in the direction of mindscapes because psychoanalysis is, I would say, maybe not the first, but the most profound, um, conceptually sound uh, idea of how the mind is somewhat oriented like a space. Psychoanalysis is also a very spatial conceptualization of the mind, as in, you know, you have higher parts, you have lower parts, you have something that's in the back, you have something that's at the front, you know? Um, depending on whether you look at Freud or whether you look at um, Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, but it, it works with a very spatial idea of how the mind works. It's spatial and it's also very prone to personification, right? Like for, for those who haven't read my Returnal article yet, um, I, I basically had to reread and refresh myself on all of Freud's work for it because it, it was his model of psychoanalysis that I, I used for the application of this theory. Uh, so that was an adventure in itself. Um, but it's really interesting. And I think part of it beyond the spatial is this idea that the model and representation of the mind to which psychoanalysis naturally lends itself also makes it very easy to conceptualize the various parts of the mind as one might different characters with different interests who are related to each other, right? And so then when you have this idea of storytelling, right, it's very easy to map such a psychology uh, onto a story and make different characters and different events analogous in one way or another to psychic experiences and thereby give us insight into the inner life of a given character. Yeah, it's it's perfect for a story because you have an inherent conflict in the in the concept. I mean, you know, Freud is all about <laughs> it's all about these conflicts and, and yeah. Jung as well. And I think like I I obviously had to think of the Persona series. It's in the name, you know. Persona <laughs> <laughs> Persona is a is actually a, a it is a conceptual term from Carl Gustav Jung that indicates sort of the mask that we put on the the quote persona that we create uh, for our you know day to day interactions, whereas there is the conflict with something that's a shadow, which is a suppressed part of ourselves that we do not wish to acknowledge. And the persona games are basically all about that. They are about you travel into you travel into characters' minds who uh, have some kind of repressed desire or can't acknowledge a certain part of themselves, and so you travel into the into their mind. Usually you just, you know, 
beat up a lot of enemies. It's like a dungeon. It's a, a JRPG, you know, turn-based JRPG. Eventually, you, you defeat a boss, which is a shadow self of that character. And then eventually, you bring everything into harmony. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those cases, too, that... I mean, A, it might as well be called stories about Jung rather than persona, <laughs> yeah. so point taken. Uh, but also it's it's a paradigmatic example of what you were saying before about how really well-articulated mindscapes are also really well-defined against reality and anchor points within that fiction. Because one of the most interesting things to me about uh, let's let's say Persona Five, right? Is you'll encounter these characters in the quote unquote real world of the game, and they behave in one way, you know, as they're embedded within society and projecting the way that they want others to see them. And then you encounter their mindscape, uh, their palace, and it's a it's a radically different experience, right? It's almost as if you're meeting a different character, and it's only throughout the course of exploring that palace and going through more day-to-day interactions with these people that you start to understand the relationship between their true self and inner psychology and the reasons that they're hiding it or projecting something else into the world. And so it's, it's a really interesting mode of character study in that regard, I think. It goes super deep considering that it has uh, these strong inspirations from visual novels, lots of dialogue, and explores very grown-up and very serious themes, such as in Persona 5, one of the first instances of this would be an abusive volleyball teacher at a high school. Um, It's the insinuations that are made are super strong and quite painful at times. Um, And uh, you need to basically defeat the shadow self to... Uh, like lead to this acknowledgement of and uh, you know then basically in unifying uh, the real self with the shadow self to bring everything together into a true self which then uh, leads to an improvement in character and one interesting thing about the persona series is also how these group of teenagers that you play dive into these mindscapes because in just i have only played persona 4 and persona 5 in 4 it's through a tv screen your TV, the TV screen is basically a glimpse into the mindscapes, into the world of the shadow selves. In Persona 5, it's a mobile app. And obviously me as a media studies scholar, it's like finger licking good. It's like, you know, the media representations <laughs> as an access, a point of access into our own, you know, subconsciousness. Or, and our, you know, I find that super appealing. Yeah, we have a a forthcoming new analyst on the site, and his uh, his debut article is all about Persona Four and talking about finger licking good at using those sorts of media studies tools to understand like the the role of the player and how they interact with that world. So I'm tremendously excited about that, uh, <laughs> as you can imagine. It's interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about to schematize mindscapes with regard to video games is, uh, you know, there are these different kinds of agents and characters within game fictions, right? And I think the mindscape can be used to understand all of them better and different games focus on one of these or another, right? So let's broadly break it into three categories, right? You have avatars and NPCs and the player herself, right? All of whom are involved in video game stories in one way or another and have distinct roles, right? So Persona 5 is a, it's a great 
paragon example of what it is to explore the mindscapes and palaces of NPCs, right? Um, characters other than the ones you're controlling, right? What's interesting to me is the game I'm actually playing through right now, Scarlet Nexus, uh, which gets only more wild and interesting every single time I pick it up. And, and I think I'm only about halfway through at this point. Um, but it kind of, it doesn't turn that on its head because you still have that kind of, um, capacity to explore the worlds of NPCs, but it's also much more foundationally a feature of your avatars and how you engage with the world and, and actually the mechanics with which you do things like combat, right? The whole conceit of it is uh, what they marketed for better or worse as brain punk uh, in contrast to cyberpunk, uh -huh. right? Mm. Which, yes, well, yeah, I, I had kind of the same reaction. I, I thought it was a very silly name, but once you actually see that in action, it turns out to be much more interesting than that marketing moniker might suggest, right? Um, and, and one of the cool aspects of that is like your quote-unquote ultimate combat ability is something called a brain field, right? Where you're actually able to extend what is in essence a mindscape, but also draw your enemies into it, right? So they're basically trapped within your conception of the world where you're able to exert these kind of uh, almost dreamlike abilities uh, as as kind of someone in persona would be able to when they're inside of their palace, right? Uh, but it's so interesting from the other perspective to make that the avatar rather than the antagonist in persona because another facet of this brain field is, yeah, you're super powered within it. You can upgrade it so that you're literally invincible, but you can only use it for a limited time. And it strains your brain such that as your character continues to use it, they slowly lose their grasp on rationality and start just ranting and raving while you're still engaging with this battle. Right. So it's like, it's a very different shift from, from the uh, antagonist of Persona 5 to seeing this through the mind of your protagonist and realizing like, wow, this kind of mental exertion, like it does afford a certain power, but you can easily see too how it can ultimately distance a character from their own conception of self in a very scary way. That is so interesting because it seems to me that the idea of exhaustion um, is somewhat tied to mindscapes because in, in in persona you also have the situation that the characters get very get exhausted very quickly they need some kind of equipment to even traverse these mindscapes and it just you know because of time and space obviously functions functions completely differently in a mindscape than it does in the material reality um, maybe a scarlet nexus is one of these interesting examples that puts that front and center when using uh, using a mindscape Front and center is totally right. I think it's a great observation that mindscapes are deeply and intimately tied to this notion of strain and, and almost needing to maintain them only for a limited amount of time in order to remain sane. I mean, we were brainstorming examples even outside the realm of video games before this, right? And one that I thought of was Inception, right? I mean, that's clearly mm. all about mindscapes. And it's also a very similar structure such that the more layers of dreams down you go, the harder it is materially to return to reality, right? And I, I think that notion of the the logic of one's mind being so different and kind of alluring, but also all consuming when it's not attached to a reference point in the real world. Like that's really, really interesting to think about. And I think it makes the point that it's really hard to 
adjudicate these mental representations when you don't have some kind of external tether to reality, right? And you're you're completely right about Scarlet Nexus. It's so funny that you would go right there without even having played the game because one of its core themes actually, even beyond the brain field, is this notion of needing to, frankly, just take a break sometimes, right? Not in a, not in a way where, you know, some of these like, ease of access games in the past have encouraged players to actually put it down for a while, but where it's actually the case that these characters who are always under such constant mental strain because their abilities are literally tied to the use of their brain, right? They will oftentimes encourage each other to just take a break and rest or take a nap. And the progression through the story is set up that there are these, you know, kind of persona-esque hangouts in between the the combat sequences and missions. And so it's really interesting to see that kind of cadence reinforcing the idea that while these mindscapes can be really powerful for, you know, both self-understanding and understanding of the other, they're also intrinsically limited by the degree to which they allow you to remain related to the real world. I want to bring up one more Japanese game. Well, actually, we've got a lot of Japanese games. If I look at the list of examples, <laughs> mostly <laughs> Japanese games, I think. <laughs> I think I honestly think there might be a reason for that. You know, there is a, there is a a profound obsession in you know Japanese culture with psychoanalysis and in the stories that uh, uh, that often come in the forms of uh, JRPGs. But one thing that really struck me that I stumbled upon coincidentally is um, uh, Yakuza. Like a dragon, uh, this I'm currently playing this. I'm currently playing Yakuza, and it's absolutely, absolutely great. Uh, and the interesting thing about it, when it comes to mindscapes, is it's mindscapes are used in a completely different way, um, because so far mindscapes are something that are kind of frightening, intimidating, exhausting. It's a very dangerous place to be in. In the case of Yakuza, your protagonist Ichiban. He, which is, by the way, just translates as the best. <laughs> <It's Ivana. laughs> he, he, he's a huge fan of Dragon Quest. Like, in-game, he's a huge fan of Dragon Quest, of the series. And he thinks of himself a hero, as a hero. He wants to become a hero. And because his mind goes so, uh, like, overboard, his imagination is so vivid, that he turns, like, the characters that you fight, the antagonists that you fight, on the actual streets of, uh, of I think it's, in, it's set in Tokyo or in certain parts of Tokyo, uh, and uh, Yokohama, exactly. Uh, and, you know, even while you're just fighting some kind of, like, a bum and another Yakuza, by the way, that's not my terminology, this is something that is in the game, mm -hmm. um, they turn into sort of small monstrosities because of his imagination. So his imagination basically infuses and enriches the world, the material reality, in a fun and exciting way that he also embraces because he loves to be a hero. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, I was initially thinking of mindscapes as being drawn from the tradition of surrealist literature, which is oftentimes very alienating and frightening and not necessarily horror, but things very similar. That sounds, mm. while very much still a mindscape, much more in the spirit of something like magic realism, right, where you can make everything more vivid and imaginative and and oftentimes much more positive by mapping something that is not real and more of mental representation onto the real world as one's engaging with it. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, <laughs> I just, I put that in Yakuza as a note because most of the games that we have in here are like uh, horror games, <laughs> scary <laughs> Japanese horror games. We've got, we've got a case 
that is a, a really interesting one and one that I think we both have a profound affection for, which is Silent Hill, which operates also, which is an interesting case of a, of a mindscape because in the Silent Hill games, as far as I recall from the ones I've played, it's always the case that um, there's some kind of traumatic incident and the characters um, in the games, they transgress a border by entering the village of Silent Hill and then that village sort of becomes a mindscape, as in becoming a projection of their guilt or whatever the thematic tie of the story is. And they have to work on themselves in order to overcome the terrors. I love Silent Hill, and I need to shout out and spiritually channel our podcast brother, Dan Hughes, because Silent Hill is his, I don't know if he would say it's his absolutely favorite series, but it holds a truly special place in his heart. He's actually mm. written a tremendous um, series of analyses on them on the site, which we can put in the show notes because it's some of the best writing I've seen on the games. Uh, but it's such a magical and interesting concept, I think, especially for this kind of conversation about mindscapes, because I think oftentimes when one thinks of a mindscape, precisely because it's this metaphysical realm that's distanced from reality, we don't associate it with any physical space in the real world, right? Think back to Persona 5, you're able to, you know, log into the mobile app and just transition into the metaverse, right? Actually, I think you might need to be in a specific geolocation in the real world for that, but it's it's indexed to a location that's specific to a certain person in the world, right? So it's still it's still focused on the subjectivity of whoever's mindscape it is, right? In contrast with Silent Hill, right? You just have this really weird and interesting notion of a physical town, a place you can actually go to uh, in fictional scary world Maine uh, and and thereby enter a mindscape and perhaps scarier still other people can go there at the same time and enter a mindscape of their own so that part of what makes let's say Silent Hill 2 such a really interesting and alienating experience is that you know you the player are going through it with James and you don't really understand why James is so racked with guilt and chased by these monsters throughout most of the game. You only come to understand that at the end. But then also, as you go through Silent Hill, you meet these other characters who are clearly experiencing their own torments in Silent Hill. Uh, and in fact, we ultimately realize are sometimes even perceiving things differently than James, who can, you know, for instance, only see the literal hellfire that is tormenting some characters after he gets to know them and understands their own psychology, right? And and so I think I think that's really fascinating to think that not only can we use literature to explore the mental content of particular characters, but also we can have these weird, unnerving overlaps between their psychologies that we have to disentangle as we're engaging with the world around us. Yeah, Silent Hill it reminds me so much of stories of ghost sightings and, you know, haunted places because it's basically a haunted village. It's a ghost town that has been, that has fell victim to a fire in a mine, I think, you know, a coal mine or something that was under the, under the village. And that's why it rains ash and it's like constantly foggy in Silent Hill. It's a very, very creepy image. Um, but I, I had to think of, of ghost sightings because I do know that, for example, in uh, in the northern part of Japan, I think it's on the on the southern border of Hokkaido, there was this, you know, this tremendous uh, tsunami 
a couple of years ago, I think it was like in the early 2010s, and uh, lots of people died. And shortly afterwards, the amount of ghost sightings increased in that area. So it's like an idea that uh, a space, an actual physical space, can be infused with something, whether you might call it a spiritual energy or whether you might call it, let's say, a proneness to psychological externalization. Wow, <laughs> what a sentence. But <laughs> that seems to be the idea behind it, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's interesting, too, to think about it from this lens of interactive storytelling, too, right? Because, I mean, the series is named Silent Hill, and the player as an agent only inserts herself into the lives of these characters within the context of Silent Hill, right? So I, I think it's interesting to think of Silent Hill, the town, not only as this place that might be infused with this, uh, what was that wonderful turn of phrase you just used? Psychic proneness to mental externalization or some <laughs> such. I, lo I love that. It rolls off the tongue, clearly. Um, but, al but also this idea, right, that the the agency of the player of Silent Hill is also somehow intrinsic to that formula and part of the town itself, right? Such that the people who find themselves there aren't just forced to confront these static representations of their guilt, but are actually compelled to move through it, right? And I just, I always go back to Silent Hill 2 and James because I think the player avatar dynamics of that are such a great metaphor and vehicle for James's psychic progress, right? Because you start out not knowing why he's there, not knowing why he's guilty. And as a result, his progress through Silent Hill is plagued by this very diffuse guilt where you're not sure what the object of it is, right? And it's just this general sense of persecution. And it's only through the progress through the town and the concomitant self-discovery that you're ultimately able to locate the source of that guilt and ultimately overcome it. Right. I think that's a, a really interesting vehicle for something that is, yes, scary, but also ultimately kind of unexpectedly positive and uplifting. Right. Where James, you know, whatever ending you get is able to in one way or another process this trauma that has been plaguing him for many, I think, years. I forget the timeline, but a long time. <laughs> yeah, it is the case that the Silent Hill, the eponymous uh, Silent Hill is almost like an actor in the game in itself without being playable, but it is. It, it is something that interacts with what's happening in that village, which is something that, you know, most places do not necessarily do, <laughs> just like that. You know, they don't they don't respond to someone's psychology as they as they enter a place. And uh, I find that I find that super interesting because it makes the series very flexible in saying um, we have this concept of basically uh, a, a mindscape. That sits on this in this in this material locality, and everything else is entirely flexible. Every Silent Hill game has different characters that come in, and this the, the aspects of this particular mindscape can be explored uh, in you know playing it off different kind of characters and different associations with with guilt and terror. Yeah, we we give a talk actually um, at PAX sometimes about the different ways in which a series can be unified because, you know, you can have series of stories that are united by things like themes or plot or particular characters. Uh, and I think one that is underutilized but always so rewarding uh, is this Silent Hill idea of games that are unified by a sense of place or psychological experience, right? It's interesting because... 
you know, the, the next thing that we're going to touch on is the mindscapes of players. And you, you say that Silent Hill, the town is not playable, but it's really interesting. And I, I would love to read, I don't know if I would ever write, but there's, I think there's an interesting analysis in there where you could argue that in some sense, the town itself is kind of the avatar for the exact reasons that I was just talking about, because the agency of the player and what the player is actually able to do seems to me at first glance, at least somewhat more amenable to the actions of the town in shaping and influencing the people who encounter it rather than a player's capacity to directly influence James, who seems like the avatar in Silent Hill 2, but who is very, very opaque relative to the player and her capacity to make him do things, right? So interesting food for thought, perhaps for a Silent Hill podcast, which I'm sure we'll do at some point. Wow. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's do Silent Hill yeah. podcast. But Dan will certainly have to be there for that. Uh, I think the last, like I said, the last mindscape that I wanted to touch on um, before we transition is this idea of the mindscape of players, right? And I know this can be something that's somewhat unintuitive uh, for the uninitiated, especially into the kinds of analysis that we do on With a Terrible Fate. But a lot of my own work, dear listeners, um, is focused on the role of the player in video games and the ways in which that can be distinct from the avatar in a game and how those relationships can influence the storytelling of video games in really interesting and novel ways. And one way in which I think that dovetails really interestingly with Mindscapes is that I think there are some games that are really susceptible to interesting interpretations where the content of the game is not the representation of a character's mind and not the representation of a single mind like Returnal, but actually the representation of its player's mind, not the actual flesh and blood player. Like it's not, you know, obviously plugging into your neurons and, you know, We're projecting memories yet. of your mom or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, frankly, I kind of hope that we never get that far. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think there is a point at which I would get off the boat, <laughs> but, oh, yes. but we'll, we'll see. Uh, time will come. But rather, right, what, what we're talking about is this, this fictional role that the player can occupy that is distinct from the avatar and separate but related to the core fictional world of the game, right? And so examples that I think about, Bloodborne is, is a really nice one. Um, there's lots of dream theming within Bloodborne, of course, but uh, I actually think, and I've written about, um, there's a way to read Bloodborne where... You know, if if you haven't even gotten past the first cutscene in the game because it's really hard or whatever, it actually opens really interestingly with this first person perspective where this um, blood vicar is is talking to you uh, about the reasons that you've come to this place to Yarnum, and then he gives you this blood transfusion, and you create this character. You go through the character creation process, uh, and the voice uh, that's later identified to be this doll and kind of assistant within the game says ah you found yourself a hunter and then for the rest of the game you encounter this third person perspective of the character you created going through these various dreamscapes and worlds of of yarnum and related nightmares and so i think there's a really interesting way to read that where what you're undergoing at the beginning of that game and that first cutscene is actually like you the player entering the dream and creating a dream representation of yourself um, just as we often do in actual dreams, right? And a lot of interesting, you know, 
ways to read the horror of Bloodborne and and the ways in which it's Lovecraftian falls out of that, right? Similarly, in the 2017 version of Prey, really, really interesting game. And I won't say too much about it because to say anything about Prey is kind of to spoil what makes it really, really interesting and fascinating. But uh, to make a long story short, there's a degree to which the world of the game is a simulation uh, and there's a throwaway discussion in the middle of the game that not a lot of people really focus on about this notion of panpsychism, which is a term actually from philosophy. Stefan, have you heard this term before? You're familiar with panpsychism? No, only yeah. in pray. So it's it's really interesting. The, the thought is basically, it comes from the combination of metaphysics and philosophy of mind, basically, and this idea that consciousness is this kind of... Um, like a universal attribute that inheres to everything. So the thought is that there is a little bit of consciousness and a little bit of mind in everything in the universe, right? Uh, and, and this is a real philosophical thesis, right? It's, it's an out there one, but it's something that philosophers actually talk about with regard to our actual world, right? Yeah. Now, Spinoza applauds. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's a a very pantheism, the idea of it's a spiritual equivalent. And you're right. You know, it's it's funny because I I think of it as this out there thing um, in modern philosophy because the modern philosophers of mind who defend it are a little, uh, let's say they're thought of as out there. Um, But you're right. There there are a lot of roots in more classical philosophy, right? Like Leibniz's metaphysics, for example, right? If you squint, it's kind of like a panpsychism because the idea is that there are these monads that are kind of like the the perspective of god and so kind of the the mind of god emanates in everything in the universe right so that there could be a whole other podcast yeah, yeah, on yeah. that right but everything's made up out of a bit of consciousness when, when yeah I, yeah a little bit of mind in everything basically and and so in prey it's really interesting because there's this notion that there's this mental apparatus that permeates everything And then on top of that notion is this sense in the game for a variety of reasons that it's very hard to locate the fact of the matter about the relationships between characters. There's an idea that you might being you might be being misled about what is true or who is on your side uh, and you're forced in that context of uncertainty to make a bunch of really kind of challenging ethical decisions across the course of the game after you're prompted at the beginning of the game to kind of be primed for that ethical decision-making by solving in this kind of scientific setting very, very simple ethical dilemmas like trolley problems and things like that, right? So I think there's a really interesting reading of Prey that I've actually talked about before, and we can link that in the show notes too, where you can think of the entire game as panpsychic in the sense that it's a representation of the player's mind and the players being kind of unwittingly compelled to work through these ethical thought experiments of what is the right thing to do in these situations where I'm not sure about, you know, the personal relationships between the different characters whom it will affect. And I just have to think about like the ethical essence of what the right thing to do is. And it, it kind of, tricks you into this mindscape because it's not immediately obvious in the same way I think it's immediately obvious in Bloodborne, right? And by virtue of doing that, I think can trick you into some really interesting ethical experimentation, right? So very out there, but in both cases, right? Like you you get what I'm saying that that's very distinct from what an avatar would be thinking or the psychology that they'd be experiencing. It's happening instead on the level of the player who's the agent interacting with this world. 
Yeah, I think it, it depends on the interpretive angle as well. Um, but I think that's a conversation that we would have to dive a little bit more deeply into. Um, I would maybe suggest that we briefly bring up the, uh, let's say, the ways in which mindscapes can be constructed in something you alluded to already, losing the grasp on material reality entirely, something where you don't have this distinction. You don't have in, like in Persona 5, you have an app that you click on. Or in even in Silent Hill, you have like a clear locality, a clear border. Once you know you go in there, then you're in, you're basically entering the space of the mindscape. Whereas in, in games such as uh, Hellblade, this is one that I had to think of. Hellblade is a really interesting example, one that very decisively uh, delves into the subject of psychosis and is very famous for the way in which it emulates the sensation of voice hearing while you play as, you know, Senua, like a Norse warrior. She tries to get back the soul of her beloved uh, Dillian, who has, been, who has been killed in a Viking attack, I think. And uh, you need to travel all the way to Helheim. And it, it, even if you look, even if you, if you don't go into the entire mythology that informs it, it is a game in which you cannot distinguish between what is real and what is not. Because you do hear voices, but an excellent example is also you do you walk through a forest and you notice there are eyes in the trees that are almost formed out of shadows. And this, these are like they're tricks that the game constantly plays on you so that you can never really tell what is real and what is not up until the point that you it doesn't matter to you anymore because all you ever see in the game is the perspective of Senua. It's so coincidental, too, that you had mentioned the um, the symbol of the tree with eyes, because you might recall it's not a, a it's not a central symbol in Returnal, but it comes up in Returnal as well. So everything is connected. Um, yeah, it's it's funny, you know, because I was I was thinking about this after writing about this idea in Returnal. And I think for me, it comes down to lacking an external tether in reality, like we've talked about. But I think there's also perhaps a more natural mold in which to cast this in terms of just allegorical tales that focus on psychology. I was I was thinking about ways in which this could be applicable beyond video games, and I actually got kicked back many, many, many years to Dante's Divine Comedy, right? Because that's very similar. It's a journey of mental and spiritual progress through the entire cosmos, right? From hell to purgatory to heaven. And even though there's nominally this tether to the real world in terms of Dante uh, encountering the gates to hell at the midpoint of his life and having to face these creatures and, and enter hell for the first time, that entrance is also still very much couched in allegory as, as is typical for, you know, the, the time and mode in which he's writing. And so I think it's very easy to cast something like that too, in terms of Dante confronting the various aspects of his own spirit. Um, it's challenging though, right? And this, this is kind of one of the things I'm wrestling with in terms of extending this uh, interpretation of Returnal as a single mind to other stories, because even in something like the Commedia, uh, and you know, I haven't played Hellblade, so I don't know the degree to which it applies there, but there's, there's so many aspects of the Divine Comedy 
that are clearly external in meaning to Dante, right? So it's it's as much a history of of Italy and the various political factions there as it is anything to do with a spiritual journey, right? And there are so many characters that could be seen as pertaining to Dante's psychology, but to reduce them to just that seems kind of um, unfair almost in a way that it's not in Returnal where these are kind of more just mythological, minimal representations that very naturally lend themselves to this kind of singular psychology, right? And so that that's a very hard thing to adjudicate when we're talking about this kind of story. I think so. I think with the Divine Comedia um, that I very much love is, uh, is that it's just so bathed in mythology and in what would be considered mythologically existing places and, and concepts that it's a little bit hard. Whereas in Returnal, I think that goes, it goes a long way in that direction. Um, I would say, in, uh, sorry, excuse me, not Returnal. I, I'm talking about Hellblade. Um, in Hellblade, you have the situation that you, I don't think ever in the game you encounter an actual other character. They are all mm. uh, pretty clearly indicated as externalizations of your own psychology, or sorry, of Senua's psychology. And um, I think... You you can you could argue like in in Hellblade she you know traverses a lot of areas and does that cave that she's walking through really exist? Well, probably you know there's no reason to believe <laughs> that it wouldn't, um, but uh, certainly it goes it it never really allows you to to make that decision to make that call whether it exists or not because you it never leaves the perspective of Senua and I think that is one of these points where mindscapes um, enter into the into the domain of mind games um, when <laughs> like Hellblade as well as a game like Fran Bow, which is also about a, a young girl very much inspired by Alice in Wonderland. Not going to say anything more about it. It's a really interesting point and click adventure. Um, also in tying into psychosis. Both of these games bring you to a point where you first think about, hmm, is this real or is it not real? And then over the course of the game, they basically break you. They basically make you... <laughs> With Fran Bo, I've really had this experience of at a certain point just saying, screw it. This is like, this game is giving me completely contradictory information on what's actually going on. So you have to give up in trying to understand what is real and what is not, and instead see it as the perspective of, in this case, the perspective of the avatar, but it also changes your perspective on the world as a player. I think there are two questions here that are worth distinguishing, though, as we get further down this rabbit hole of game as mind. The first question is like, you know, can I tell whether some aspect of this game, like its world within the context of this game, is real or just a psychological impression? Uh, and if it's ambiguous, as you say, you might give up on that. But then I think there's a subsequent question of, okay, given what I know about the content of this world and its ontological status as real or merely psychological, like, does that inform my understanding of the story or the psychology it's representing in a material way, right? And and I think that latter point is part of what was so interesting to me about Returnal, right? Because it's it's really easy to be ambiguous in really unsatisfying ways about various aspects of your story and say like, oh, is it real or not? Who knows? It's right? all just a dream. Hey, we're talking about Inception again. <laughs> Everything comes back around. <laughs> but I think I think one of the things that is so 
cool and shows an alternative path in Returnal is that I would argue there's a lot of stuff in that game that is ambiguous, right? Like the the reality of Atropos and even the the identity of the people involved in the car crash. But as I argue in the article, I think those ambiguities are actually an essential part of how we can understand the psychology that it's representing, right? And I think once you see how ontological ambiguities can be leveraged in narratively meaningful ways, it just makes you that much more disappointed with games and stories that just throw in ambiguity and mystery for the sake of inviting people to speculate with no real content behind them, you know? Yeah, ambiguity as a gimmick. Yeah, ambiguity as a gimmick. Shall we put a pin on it at this point? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think, you know, the the one maybe final thought I would have on Game is Mind is I mentioned at the end of the article that this is a kind of modality that is at once really particular to Returnal and could also be extended to a lot of games because for all the reasons we've talked about, it, it this is something that I think in many ways feeds off of the peculiar um, aspects of Returnal storytelling that are so cool. But also, I think if we attach the psychological lens to similar games and pay attention to the nuances of those games, it might be really interesting ways to see and do justice to their stories in new ways, right? So games that I'm thinking about and would would invite other people to think about too if they want to try this analysis for themselves, right? Like a game like Hollow Knight is really, really cool and interesting and I think still very under-theorized. But you you think about things like the void and the radiance and the things going on there. And it's, it's, it's very easy to start to think about it in terms of things like it and superego. And of course, you know, on a, on a publication such as with the terrible fate have to at least shout out Majora's mask. Right. Um, it interestingly, like I didn't realize this until after I published that piece on Returnal, but of course this is also very focused on time cycles. So I don't know what it is about me and time cycles. Um, (laughs) and in, in one way it has, you know, many of the, side characters that make it harder to shoehorn a work of fiction into a single psychology. But on the other hand, you know, you navigate this pocket universe of Termina with Link and his engagement with side characters primarily terminate in him getting these masks that allow him to adopt their personas in one way or another, right? So I think there's a reading you could do there where the exploration could also be conceived as an exploration of a single mind, um, but it's well beyond the scope of this podcast to actually do that. But listeners, uh, that's mostly meant as an invitation. I mean, if you find yourself interested in mindscapes or thinking about games as a representation of a single mind, we'd love to hear from you uh, and about those games that you think are worth digging into from this kind of psychoanalytical standpoint exactly we might always go deeper into individual questions and individual games um that's maybe a general invitation to all of you out there as well if you feel like there's a particular mindscape that you would like us to ponder on the show then please uh, send us an email to podcast at with a terrible fate.com in the meantime we're going to venture ahead into our side quests As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we dive into things that happen within video game culture and other things that are on our mind. And still, Aaron, you've got some things to tie up regarding Returnal. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, After writing 20,000 words on it, it still has some things left unsaid. No, I joke, I joke. Um, Yeah, we thought that the main story would be a really fun opportunity to engage with some of the core themes about the game uh, while still making it a broader conversation. But that said, uh, I I was really happy to see 
a lot of like-minded Returnal fans uh, engaging with my work over the course of last week and asking some questions about it and just raising some interesting points that, frankly, I hadn't thought of. So I wanted to take some time to address those directly. And hopefully, dear listeners, if, if you're interested in Returnal and you have or haven't read my article, uh, you'll, you might want to join the conversation after this and we can keep it going. But I wanted to raise some things here and just talk briefly about them. So the first is a broad idea, um, which I think, Stefan, frankly, we, we could do a whole other episode about because it's just different levels and modes of interpretation of video game stories, which is something that has interested me for a long time and I've written about in the past. In this case, it's the question of interpreting the literal content of a story in terms of its plot and the events that happen versus the symbolic content or how we can understand the story to represent something beyond what is literally there or taken at face value, right? And I hope that, you know, listeners, based on the conversation we just had in our main story, it, it's clear that especially in these kinds of comprehensive game as mind style um, fictions, it's not even really clear always how to determine what is literal, which I think is part of the, the interesting challenge, right? Um, in the case of Returnal, there are lots of theories going on in terms of what literally happens. Uh, I actually had a really great conversation on Twitter about precisely this uh, with a user by the name of Karcha87. So I want to shout you out. Uh, thank you for having that great conversation with me. Um, and Karcha87 was nice enough to share his or her own interpretation of what happened on the literal level, thinking about whether Selene uh, actually created the planet of Atropos and if the sentience were, were actually, you know, previous versions of Selene that evolved on Atropos and things like this. The, the sentience, they are basically, from, from what I recall from my playthrough of it, they're like uh, the civilization that populated Atropos or that still populated them to a certain degree. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, there are lots of different layers of that that I, I talk about in the work, but basically it's it's uh, a sentient civilization, right? Um, you see the remnants of the civilization itself in Derelict Citadel, the third biome, uh, and you encounter through the bosses many of these um, severed sentients, right, where severed sentients are those that are understood to have detached from the hive mind that, that governs the sentients who still have contact with their rationality, right? And, and I spell out in the, in the article what this means in psychoanalytic terms, right? Uh, but but this, uh, this Twitter user's thought was that, uh, and, and I've, I've seen versions of this rehearsed elsewhere too, that these sentients are actually various evolutions of Selene on Atropos. And that's why all of the xenotype technology that Selene encounters on the planet is, is so well fitted to her suit, for example. Right. Uh, I think that stuff tr is tremendously interesting, but I think one of the cool things about game analysis and literary interpretation in general, but also especially with something like Returnal, is you can distinguish between that level of trying to understand what as a fact of the matter happened within a story with the best way to interpret its symbolic content, right? Uh, and as I was thinking about this, I'm, I'm not sure if this is exactly the same distinction or if it's just in the vicinity, but something that I think about a lot in my work that actually came up earlier in this podcast conversation with you, Stefan, uh, in terms of, you know, my interpretations of Bloodborne and Prey, because you can ask two kinds of questions about video games, right? Uh, and stories in general, right? You can ask like, what is the fact of the matter happened? And 
what I call um, like narrative grounding questions, right? Like in terms of the fiction, what is it in virtue of which that happened, right? And that sounds like philosopher jargon, but a really like concrete example of this for, you know, Legend of Zelda fans out there is, you know, you can think about time travel in Legend of Zelda and ask two flavors of question, right? One is like, what's the best way to understand the series of events in the timeline because of the time travel that happens? That's asking like a literal question about how events proceeded. And you can also ask like, what's the best explanation of what it is in virtue of which Link is able to time travel, right? Is it like, is it because of the will of the goddess? Is it because there's some particular aspect of Link that's not shared by other people in this universe? Is it because of that player? And that's a different level of question, right? It's a question of what it is in virtue of which the events happen rather than the best way to understand those events, right? That's all to say something very similar is going on in terms of how I'm thinking about Returnal. And I think you know, the the conversation on Twitter ended with this idea of like, well, why don't we just go with why not both, right? Like, why, why don't we just, you know, yeah. buy into both interpretations, which, you know, that that can sound like a cop out, but I think it's really interesting to parse down to this level of like narrative interpretation and say, you actually can choose both, right? You can have your understanding of like, what literally happened in terms of Celine and Atropos and, and the events of the narrative, while also having a view about, you know, what it is in virtue of which that happened or what it symbolically represents, right? I, I think, you know, I don't know if you share this view, Stefan, but I think part of what inspired me to do this work on Returnal is that it's it's really not often, especially in this day and age with gaming, that every aspect of a game's fiction bends towards a particular kind of interpretation on the symbolic level, right? Like you you might see inspirations and themes, but oftentimes, especially with all of the side quests and optional content in games nowadays, it's pretty diverse in terms of the themes that they draw on. Whereas like Returnal, the more you look into it and zero in on it, the more it all seems to point towards the same kind of symbology of representing a single mind, which is really unusual and really like rewards, I think, that kind of interpretation in a way that's not merely speculative, you know? Yeah, and I think that w- that is also what makes Returnal such a particularly strong game and one that is easily recommendable, even if it's in part of a genre that one might not usually be a fan of. I know that it was your first proper roguelike was for me also like a very like it initiated me to the world of roguelikes and uh, i think that's what makes it so recommendable yeah this is stefan from the future i'm currently editing the show and i wanted to ping myself in briefly to let you know that there are some spoilers ahead for Returnal. So if you don't want to know what happens around the midpoint of the game and around the ending of the game, then please feel free to skip ahead to the time mark of one hour and 20 minutes and you'll be golden. Enjoy. And then to round this off with a few more specific um, plot points, I guess you could call them while they're on the level of, of events that are happening, people raised some really interesting thoughts about um, elements of Returnal that didn't feature centrally into my analysis. So I just want to offer my thoughts on them uh, in this side quest. So a user on Twitter, actually, by the great, great username of Good Snacks, um, mentioned mm-hmm. in relation to the piano song uh, that features in the in Celine's putative escape from Atropos and subsequently the fourth biome echoing ruins when she confronts Hyperion, who's playing the song on an organ, right? Good Snacks mentioned 
that the piano line seems to be derived from Don't Fear the Reaper, the seminal Blue Oyster cult song, um, which, of course, also for those who played Returnal features centrally in the in the events that happen. Right. Just for those that, that can't associate anything with Don't Fear the Reaper, think of there's this wonderful SNL sketch. <laughs> I need more cowbell. <laughs> yes, that's, it's that I couldn't get that out of my head while I was playing Returnal. I, I just saw like. <laughs> I I actually, I, I made this joke on Twitter, and I think I think Harry Krueger, the director, actually liked it, which made my day to have an SNL joke land with the director of this game. I, I posted a <laughs> GIF from that great sketch you're talking about, and I was like, yeah, actually, we can see here a live rendition of the conflict between the id and the superego, uh, which is maybe the most <laughs> niche joke I've made all year. But yes, it's that song. Um, anyways, so, so Good Snacks made this observation of like, uh, you know, these these two songs seem to be tied together. What do you think of that? Um, and, you know, I think the the notion of Don't Fear the Reaper, we don't have to get into all of the lyrics, but the title kind of says it all, right? It, it seems like, to me, within the model of psychoanalysis, uh, a really compelling representation of the death drive, which is one of the urges that Freud thought um, motivated the id, right? And I think that actually ties in really nicely to the broader conceptualization of Returnal as a single mind, because Celine actually talks about, as, as some other commentators mentioned, how her mother could never stand the song, Don't Fear the Reaper. Uh, there's a point in the house at which she, she puts it on a record player and she remarks about this. And so if we're thinking about the superego as derived from Thea uh, and the song Don't Fear the Reaper as the death drive coming up from the id. Uh, it's a pretty clear model, in my view, of the superego again coming into conflict with the instincts of the id, which we then also see played out and manifested through Hyperion, a representation of the, the severed who have lost connection with society and the superego and gotten in touch with the id, playing the piano rendition of that same song. So I, th I think that's a really nice tie-in, and it's something that I'd never thought about before. So good snacks. I wanted to thank you for that. Um, another one that <laughs> I, I was really happy so Someone mentioned to me, I, I won't mention their username because it was in a private message, um, but I, I clocked this when I was going through the game and then I totally forgot about it, which maybe in itself says something. But Stefan, did you ever notice the door that you can't get to in the crash site uh, just outside of Helios? Do you know the door I'm talking about? Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. I think I've been walking around that ship for so many times, always thinking like at a certain point it might <laughs> open, but it, yeah, I, I don't think it ever does, does it? No, and it's it's not even that it doesn't open, but it doesn't. It's not even clear how you would access it because it's on this really high ledge that's like higher than Celine's um, jump radius. So, it's, but it's like one of those big power doors that usually has like another area or a boss behind it on the rest of Atropos, and it's totally unclear how you would be able to access it. Right. So, uh, you know, as you might imagine, some people are thinking maybe it'll become accessible as some sort of DLC or additional content later on. On. But I think it was interesting to me, too, to think about it from the psychoanalytic lens, right? Because I could also see it as a model for, you know, some aspect or corner of the mind that is, you know, blocked by such severe resistance that it's just it's impossible for the ego to access it, even with the help of analysis, right? 
And so it's it's frustrating, but frustrating in the same way as like total analysis might be conceptually impossible. So I I, I tend to like, as readers of this article and my other work will know, um, narrative explanations that make meaning out of moments in games where players get frustrated, right? Like why you, why you might hate trying to get through Dark Souls or why you might walk away from Returnal, which I talked about in this article. So I, I liked the idea of being able to, to make meaning out of that damnable door. Right. Um, and then finally, just to, to put a bow on this, a lot of people and kind of the, the hot topic and the um, like event level interpretation of Returnal right now, I would say, is the tier three databank entries. And for those who haven't paid attention to this or haven't played Returnal, um, basically every object in the game it has an analysis by Celine, which is, is part of what I talk about in this article and factors into the psychological interpretation. But there are different levels of analysis that are stored in her internal databank, right? And basically, as you encounter this object more or you beat a hostile more, um, there's a running clock. And as you accrue a certain number of experiences with an object, you get a deeper databank uh, data entry on it. And there are three such tiers, right? And what's interesting is once you get to the third tier, it seems like you're accessing this weird, inscrutable bit of narration. Uh, and if people haven't encountered this with any particular object, I'd encourage you just to go to the Returnal Wiki. They're doing a really good job of collecting all the information about the game. Um, and, and actually, this speaks to the point of how hard it is to get these third-level databank entries, because for some of the like random drop objects who have such entries, like no one, to my knowledge, has been able to get the tier three analyses of them yet. But if you look at the entries for things like bosses and such, where it's easier, you can see examples of this, right? And so people are wondering like, well, when you put all these together, does it tell some kind of other story? Is it going to explain things more? Uh, but basically no one, even people who have poured like hundreds of hours into the game have been able to get all of them. And so they've kind of just given up, uh, which I, I think it's interesting. I hope it's not just an idle puzzle. Uh, I think, you know, for all of the experience I've had with the game and the conversations I've had with people from Housemark, I don't think it is just an idle puzzle because that's so like against the spirit of this game. I would say, in my view, you know, if you want to tie it into the psychoanalytic interpretation, I think you can. I think the point that I would underscore is remember from my article that all of these different things that Celine is encountering through her journey across Atropos are basically what, um, what Freud and Anna Freud, his daughter, referred to as pre-conscious connecting links, basically tools that an analyst is able to use in order to pull unconsciousness uh, and its content into a, a mode of presentation that the ego can experience and so understand the conflicts that are guiding it, right? And so I think it's interesting to recognize that, you know, if you have that kind of perspective in mind, you know, there might ultimately be unconscious reasons for all of these free associations that someone is making and why they're manifesting the particular unconscious links that they are. But it might be just so hard to get to the bottom of the reasons behind those pre-conscious links through just the constant repetition of analysis that it might ultimately just be prudentially easier to use those pre-conscious links as tools to arrive at whatever the core unconscious conflict is, which in the in the universe of Returnal, I interpret as the car crash and that mode of individuation from id to superego and, and ego, 
right? So I think that's that's how I would adjudicate it in my interpretation. But I'm I'm eagerly watching all of the lore theorists and people who are more focused on the literal events trying to unpack it. And so if there is more there, I truly hope we find it in this wonderful mystery game that just keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna wait for the DLC, you know. <laughs> I, I tried to platinum the game, but there was some some problems in the way where I couldn't trigger certain things to happen because it's like RNG. And, uh, yeah. and and that always frustrates me. So I, I hope that there's going to be a DLC that opens that door and that there's going to be some additional content and some of the trophy stuff is going to be fixed maybe a little bit. And then, yeah, and then I'm going to pass <laughs> on this. <laughs> I will tell you, though, I'll say this is one of the reasons I love the psychoanalytic interpretation so much because you talk about RNG being a frustrating thing for getting some of those drops. But is that not so attuned to the process of free association and trying to surface things in a way that is not always, you know, deliberate or intentional or something that can be architected by the analyst, especially when the platinum trophy is named Helios, the representation of one's total understanding of the id. Yeah, I know, I know, but the problem is time. Time is the problem. I'm just, uh, I'm playing so many things and I have to, at the moment, I'm actually working very intensely on an, an, another analysis, uh, not for With a Terrible Fate, but for my, my PhD. And my goodness so many video games to play so many things so to little time wow so little time <laughs> yeah time uh, my side quest uh, also relates to time because it is the 20th anniversary of final fantasy 10 yay congratulations i wanted to bring this up briefly because this is one of the games that have very personally influenced me i think probably like no other final fantasy i think i played Final Fantasy X when it came out. And I think it might have been the first Final Fantasy that I played directly when it came out. And I do remember, um, without going too deep in my biographical background, it got me through a rough patch, through a rough time in school. It was one of these JRPGs that really inspired me. And I'm very grateful for that. And um, I stumbled upon an article that <laughs> that that is just super interesting. Uh, it's called... A look at Final Fantasy's first sex scene 20 years later. It's written by Ash Parrish and published on Kotaku.com. Where else? <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> and Ash Parrish, Parrish uh, she indulges in some memories of, of an exceedingly romantic scene between Titus, the protagonist, and Yuna, the love interest. Um, this is a sequence that everyone who has played Final Fantasy X knows, and even those that might not have played the game are probably aware of, because you have this apocalyptic world, this apocalyptic scenario, <clears throat> and the protagonist Titus and the love interest Yuna, they are basically on a dangerous journey together with a whole group of people, and there's this persistent romantic tension between the two. You know, they want to get together. You know, it's quite obvious from the first time they encounter one another, but it doesn't really work out. And then around the midpoint of the game, roughly, I'm not going to spoil the ending, don't worry about that. Roughly about the midpoint of the game, they reach uh, Makalania Lake, which is, uh, or a, a lake in Makalania Forest. There's this um, beautiful, uh, beautiful lake, sh a shimmering lake with uh, trees all around it. And the two of them have, I think, probably the first opportunity where they have some time alone together. And uh, they comfort each other a little bit. They have some conversations. Uh, they swim around in the lake. And eventually it leads into this beautiful romantic scene where they they kiss underwater. 
while all these glowing orbs are flying. You know, it's a Final Fantasy game. And this Steki uh, Dane, the song is playing, which translates to um, Isn't It Lovely? I'm sure. Oh, before we get a copyright. It's like I'm back there in that scene. (laughs) (laughs) It is so beautiful. It's so heartwarming. I know it's so, it's it's such a, such a cliche. It's such a, like, it's such a cheesy scene, but also so genuinely romantic. And in the way that it just goes all out and basically (laughs) just puts all gears into action, everything into motion to go full on romantic. That's, I think, very admirable. And uh, Ash Parrish says, says about the scene, quote, it is probably the most romantic moment in a Final Fantasy game ever. And it is definitely the sexiest. Even I, at my naive age, understood their two bodies swirling around each other, fully clothed but tenderly touching fingertips, was a metaphor for sex, end quote. And she goes on to say, quote, until that point, I understood sex as something people did when they were attracted to each other, the same way people ate when they were hungry. It was the satisfaction of a physical, not emotional need. But Final Fantasy finally linked sex to an emotion I could understand. Love, end quote. And if I'm being very honest with myself, I think it has done that for me too. (laughs) I I have to act as the faith here and, and channel a representation of Dan in a few ways uh, because first it, it it so figures that he'd be out of town on a week when we're discussing both Silent Hill and also Final Fantasy X which also <laughs> holds up as, as one of the most formative games for him uh, and, and not so much for me so I won't be able to channel his views perfectly but I will tell you uh, my guess is he would be of a piece with me about this which is you know I I think the sentiment of this article is is very lovely and all well and good and i would be the last person to denigrate the value of video games or storytelling in helping people to have you know moments of self-discovery i think that's tremendous i think we could all give examples of that that's great let's celebrate that now having said that let me be a jerk for two seconds about it all right um First of all, I mean, we don't need to dwell on the title, but, you know, it's it, it is far from clear to me that this is a sex scene. Right. And so we get it, Kotaku. You're clickbaiting. Let's move on. Right. That's not that interesting. We've talked about that many times on the podcast. What I think is is more interesting is as I was thinking about this, I think it actually in a kind of surprising way ties into exactly what we were just talking about with regard to the literal versus the symbolic because that quote you uh, you read, Stefan, <laughs> it's, it's really telling to me that the author says, you know, uh, I understood that this was like clearly a metaphor for sex, right? Um, the author doesn't actually use the word clearly. I, d- I don't want to put words in the author's mouth. But it is not clear to me at all that that is a metaphor for sex. Uh, and I think this is one of the key moments where we can talk about how like symbolic interpretations in games like are great and wonderful and meaningful, but they have to be attuned to the broader ecosystem of the story's fiction in order to hold water. No pun intended with all this underwater kissing action that's going on, <laughs> right? I only mention this not to not to just be anal about the analysis, but one of the things that to me really holds up as really just emotionally resonant and 
and memorable about Final Fantasy X is this notion of an insurmountable distance between Titus and Yuna, right? And we we can't throw a spoiler warning on this because this this is a spoiler for the game, but I think it's an important one to the point. Future Stefan here again. Aaron is very much right about this. We're going to put a spoiler warning in, even though Final Fantasy X, it is, honestly, it's a quite quite an old game, 20 years old. But if you still, if you haven't played it and you really care and you do not want to know what happens at the ending of that game, then please skip ahead to the time code of one hour and 25 minutes. Enjoy the rest of the show. Ultimately, what comes out at the end of Final Fantasy X is this idea that Titus isn't really there. He's a representation that is being channeled by the faith along with his homeland of Xanarkand, um, along, I think, with Oren. It's been a minute since I played the game. Um, and he actually like disappears at the end of the game after they defeat Yu Yevon, right? And so... I say that because especially after that context of the ending, I think back on that scene and part of what makes it so emotionally salient, but also kind of sad and and pathos ridden for me is this idea that these are two souls who are so intimately attached to one another. And yet because of their historical distance and just the different ways in which the they occupy the world they can never truly be together they can never consummate the relationship in a way that they might otherwise want to you know yeah this is already integrated into the story before the ending is even revealed because uh, you know i think you get to know roughly around that point that um I mean, there there is this distance that is somehow there that you can't quite grasp as a player at first, but then you learn uh, that the assumption is that Yuna is going to die in the process right. of defeating the evil antagonist, Sin. <laughs> what a name. And uh, <laughs> I think that is at, at that point, it's already palpable, and it's obviously there to make a very uh, dramatic contrast, right, between their desire to be together, which peaks, and then just shortly thereafter, it's like, oh, by the way, we can never be together. Yeah. Truly heartbreaking. There's this thing that Yuna, she knows about this already. She knows she has to sacrifice herself. And then there's Titus, who's so uh, cheerfully naive. He's unaware, so blissfully ignorant of what's going on. And um, I think that's part of where this beauty comes together. Um, regardless, I would say that a metaphor for sex, I, I understood that. I understood it as such. Uh, maybe because I read it in an analogy of, you know, the Hollywood studio system films, where it's like the classic, uh, you know, camera pan to the... Um, to the fireplace or out the window into a night and a, a star-filled sky, you know? Like, I see I see that kind of as an analogy. For, for me, I know what pretty much uh, that. Yeah, yeah, no. And, and, and listen, we don't need to turn the end of the podcast into uh, an all-out war over sex metaphors. But <laughs> I, I think for me, right, beyond the, the overall narrative content, uh, you know, put on my my best Dan impression again and think about the the cinematic choices that are made because it doesn't pan away, right? It's a focus on them. And I think that if it were a that kind of, you know, typical style of pan away, it's much easier to read that, uh, you know, as something like, you know, they're having a moment that's too intimate for us, the audience, to intrude on, right? I think the cinematography of that scene is very different and it almost forces us to confront this kind of um, 
unrealizable desire for them to be together. And so that's, that's part of why I'm so adamant about this. I think it's, it's just like, it. I, I don't want to go so far as to say it's a misreading of the scene because that's not fair, but I think there's a lot going on there that makes it so much more than an implication of sex. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I would never re want to reduce it to that. Uh, but I think it is maybe, maybe I can phrase it in this way. What it meant to me is um, it, if we abstract from sex and look at something like just physical, sensual experience of two bodies coming together. So, you know, it doesn't have to be sex. It can be kissing. It can be hugging, whatever. But, at, you know, it was, I played this at an, at an age in Ash Parish apparently as well, where this connection between these kinds of touches and the feeling that you would have as what you, you would experience as love has not really clicked into place yet, you know, because you've made maybe some first experimentation. You're like 14 years old or something, you know, you don't have, you don't have much, much clue about what it actually means to have sex, to be in a relationship and what physical touch really means for a relationship. And I think Final Fantasy was one of these games that opened that door in, in understanding a little bit for me, because not many games, especially at the time, did that. Not many games actually went that far. I'm not quite sure whether there are examples. I don't think there are any other examples in the Final Fantasy series that go in this direction, at least not this this far. I don't think there are any, like, you know, proper makeout scenes or something. But yeah, maybe we should do a separate episode on sex metaphors. I'd really like that. <laughs> yeah, or, or at least intimacy between characters. I mean, I, I will say this to be as charitable and agreeable as, as I'm probably going to get to here. I think one of the things in terms of intimacy in that scene beyond the, the overall theming of the game that is really interesting um, and that I remember as a player of that game is, you know, there's this tension that video game storytelling is amazing as, at, at exploiting between treating the video game as a game to complete and as a story to experience, right? This is very well-trodden ground in, in thinking about games. Uh, and I think with a game like a Final Fantasy title, right, um, and especially one with uh, as engaging a combat system as Final Fantasy X, with you have the whole battle sphere grid and everything like that, um, it, it's it's very easy to just get locked in the mindset of, okay, you know, I'm going to figure out how to get the best combination of the characters with the best stats in my party in order to just mow down enemies and think of them simply as tools, right? And so then to have this very, very well-rendered and intimate scene between party members where they treat each other as anything but battle compatriots, right? I think that is a, a really interesting case of compelling the player to reconceptualize the way they're treating their party members and how they think of them, right? And and cast them as characters with relationships rather than just tools for getting through the game. And I think that's a very cool way of doing that. Yeah, I love that. That was a really cool conversation because that went much deeper than I had anticipated. I thought it's just like, oh yeah, cool. It's like, <laughs> was, was totally cool to think back to that sequence. But wow, that went so much more, so much deeper. And I'm going to make a couple of notes for potential episode ideas uh, that we can dive into further down the line. Welcome to With a Terrible Fate, always deeper than you'd <laughs> hope. <laughs> and thank you out there 
for listening. If you enjoy this show, then please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash with a terrible fate. Feel free to leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. Obviously, find all of our written content at withaterriblefate.com. You know, make sure to scroll the show notes because we're going to link quite a few articles in there. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com. You have some time because uh, next week we're not going to release a show, but then we're going to be right back for you. So, Oh, and and just to interrupt before we sign off, can I do one more housekeeping thing? I totally forgot about yeah, this. Yeah, of course, um, of course. We mentioned this on our social media, but I'm, I'm proud to announce that we have finally added to the publication a really obvious feature that should have been there from the beginning. Um, if you go under the Games tab on the website, you will now see before the list of all game titles a category named all articles. So if you're interested in just reading about video game analysis and want to see some of the topics we've covered without diving into a particular game, this tab will allow you to scroll through all of the written articles on the site. You'll see the the cover images and the titles and everything all the way back to when it was just a blog about Majora's Mask. So a number of people have asked me about this. I'm embarrassed we didn't have it sooner, but it is now there and I hope you enjoy it. Well, enjoy the read and see you in two weeks.